Have you ever just been treated super nicely uh, for no reason? Like somebody just did something for you and they didn't have a reason to do it. Uh, You weren't asking for it. You were uh, not expecting it. You weren't even hoping for it, really. It just kind of happened. And uh, this is just a a small story, but maybe you've had this kind of on steroids or magnified. Thank you, Haley. The service around here. Uh, Recently, I showed up at Starbucks in Wilsonville, which I go pretty frequently, and they said, hey, somebody bought your drink today, and I was like, that's weird. Who bought my drink, and why did they assume I would be here? Um, And they, uh, they just paid for anything that I wanted, and I figured it out later who it was. They never told me, but I, I figured it out. I kind of went down a, a rabbit trail. And, and the person who actually bought me the coffee, uh, the last time we had had an interaction was, was a, a negative interaction, not a bad interaction, not uh, an evil interaction, really. It just wasn't something that was very pleasant for either of us. And, and I don't think this was an apology because no apology was needed. I didn't need to apologize to them. They didn't need to apologize to me. But it was still, it, it made it a little bit more staggering because, you know, out of kind of the negativity, and I didn't know if this person still, you know, thought anything of me, uh, all of a sudden they bought me coffee just to be nice. And uh, in fact, just because they were passing through Wilsonville, it's not somebody who lives around here. And it was cool. And we all have, hopefully, we all have kind of moments where we can look back in, in life and, and we go, wow, that was cool that they did that for me. I don't know why they did that for me. I didn't know them that well. We weren't that close. You know, I don't know what made them do that, but they did it for me. And it was pretty awesome to see. It, was, it made me feel good about myself. And the reality is, we know this to be true, we all like people to do nice things for us. We all like people to make sacrifices for us. We all like people to uh, respect us and love us and care about us and be there for us even when, you know, we don't deserve it or when we've done something wrong or, um, you know, we haven't been that nice to them or whatever it might be. But here's the other side of it. While we all like that, none of us really want to be nice, to be caring, to sacrifice for, to take care of people who are jerks to us. You know that, right? Like when somebody's mean to you, it's a lot harder to do something nice for them. That's the reality. And so what happens, I think we all know this, it happens in families, it happens in countries, it happens in friendships. Somebody's a jerk to somebody else. And then that person says, well, now I don't want to do anything nice to you or for you. And so they're kind of a jerk back. And then this person over here is more of a jerk. And eventually everybody's just kind of a jerk to each other. And we go, where did that all go wrong in the first place? And so we have this this major dichotomy. Uh, We all want people to be nice to us. But when people aren't nice to us, we don't want to be nice to them. And so then the world seemingly gets, you know, worse and worse. And people are never nice to anybody. And, And I would would point out that that it seems in our current culture today it's a lot more staggering when somebody just does something kind loving gentle for somebody else 
for no good reason, isn't it? I mean, in the old days, we had this thing called hospitality, and and we just wanted to be nice to people. But in our current culture, it's like we just kind of want to sit in our houses and never have to do anything for anybody because, you know, we have Netflix or whatever. And and so it seems that now, even more than ever, like just to do something kind, uh, something you know, gracious for somebody uh, is, is pretty weird. And I think that what we read today in uh, First, Peter's, uh, First Peter chapter two and, ver- and chapter three, we'll, we'll kind of look at both of them. Um, we'll just kind of go quickly through a, a large passage of scripture today. What we're gonna see is that the way that it should be for Christians is that our treatment of others should not be based at all on how they treat us, but rather on something else, and we'll look at that in a little bit. And, and as we do this series on living a beautiful life, this is obvious, right? Uh, the way we treat other people is a pretty strong dictator of whether or not our lives are beautiful or not beautiful. You can just look at the people you know, and if they're nice to you, then you kind of think their their lives are a little bit better than a person who isn't nice to you. And Peter is going to show us, I think, that, that our treatment of people cannot be based on the way that they treat us, because as I've already pointed out, that means that ultimately it's just going to be the snowball effect where nobody's that nice to anybody and all the relationships are bad. But our treatment of people must be based on something else. And so here's, here's what Peter says, starting in, in chapter two, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Pause. And endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, then this is commendable before God. Now, there's two parts of this kind of long passage that we're going to look at that you may not like. And if you're not a Christian, then you really don't like it. And it may have even been a part of two parts of this may have been like the verses that you point at when you're trying to tell people that the Bible isn't as good as those Christians say it is. And one of them is right here at the beginning because all of a sudden he turns his attention towards slaves and he tells them how they ought to treat their masters. And what some people would like to say to Peter and to Paul, another author of the Bible who also talks about slavery, is, hey, why didn't you just tell people to stop having slaves? But Paul, Peter's attention here is not turned towards slave owners, but rather he turns his attention towards the slaves. Now, there's a couple of reasons, I think, for this. And and the first is that when the Bible was written, there was no real good chance of, of it being written and slavery stopping. 
just probably wouldn't have happened. Slavery was ingrained into the culture in a way uh, that, it, that it's never been ingrained in, in American culture even. It was just a normal, accepted, everyday part of life. Maybe in Southern uh, America, not Southern Oregon, Southern America, we have a glimpse of that, but it was just part of the economic culture. People even sold themselves into slavery and entered servant servanthood to kind of get out of debt or whatever. And so this is a normal part of their economics. And so instead of the Bible writers turning their attention and saying something that that probably wouldn't have happened anyway, stop slavery altogether. Uh, they turn their attention towards slaves and masters in other places. And, and they say, look, since this is a part of your culture, let's do it in a godly way. Let's interact within this culture in a way that pleases God because it's gonna be there anyway. And here, addressing slaves, he says to these slaves, look, here's what I want you to do. Submit yourselves to your masters. This idea of submission and we'll see it a couple of times in this passage, is simply to lower yourself for the good of somebody else, to place yourself underneath somebody else. Now, in the early church, there may have been this idea. Just think about this now. Christians believe that all people have equal worth and value, and we'll touch on that more in a minute, and we're all important in God's eyes, and we all have been created in the image of God and all these things. We all, this is what Christians believe. It's a Christian doctrine, in fact, and because of this, you could, you could see a slave saying, okay, well, I have as much value as the guy who owns me, and you'd be right, But therefore, out of that, I don't need to respect him anymore. I don't need to be obedient to him anymore. I can just do whatever I want because of this. And Peter comes along and he says, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's look at this. And he says, instead of that, why not be a slave who submits to your master and does what they ask you to do? Now, I might rub us wrong. But Peter says that they do it not because their master is better than them, not because their master owns them, not because this is the way it is in culture and and because you should in a cultural way, but, but because, notice, they ought to have a reverent fear for God. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of our first picture of what applies to us because none of us are slaves. The way in which you interact in your relationships ought not be based on the treatment you receive from another person, but instead it ought to be based on your holy respect for God. That's a big deal. Because he says like, hey, do this not only for the ones that are kind to you, that are nice to you, but also do it for the ones that are jerks, that beat you, that treat you like you're nothing. Look at them and say, hey, because, not because you're kind, nice, whatever, not because of how you treat me, but because of my holy respect for God, I will be a great slave for you, even though I have as much value and worth and and all those things as you do. Now this, I mean, now think, if if it's said to a slave, and and perhaps the, the worst 
relationship that we know that mankind can have, somebody owning somebody else. I mean, there's nothing, in my opinion, more contrary to the creation of God and humanity than somebody owning somebody else because of what I've already said, that we all have been created in the image of God and we all have purpose and meaning and value and all, all of those things. There's nothing more contrary to the work of God in my mind than, than a slave owning somebody else. But he says, even in that horribly sinful evil, gross, worldly relationship, don't base your treatment of one person on how they treat you. Base it on your holy respect for God. Now, just stop and think about all of the relationships that you have and let's just, you have people, you know this, you have people that are jerks to you. They don't own you, but you have people who are jerks to you, who are unloving, unkind. They punish you whenever they can possibly punish you. And you already know this, but your natural inclination, the way you feel dictates that you should just be a jerk back or that you should avoid them altogether. And Peter comes along and says, look, if you respect God, then you lower yourself. You submit to them for their good. You put yourself underneath them for their good. That's a big deal. So the first thing we see is that our treatment of people is not based on any type of treatment that they might give us, but instead our, our treatment of others. If we are Christians and if we want to have beautiful lives, whether you're a Christian or not, it must be based on our respect for God, not on the way others treat us. And then he says this other thing in 1 Peter 2.21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. If you're a Christian, this is what you believe, ready? That despite your shortcomings, Christ lowered himself for you. He suffered for you. He was beaten for you. He died for you. And Peter says, hey, you've been called, if you're a Christian, to a religion that is in fact based on somebody submitting to you despite you having no merit or, or, or any good in you that deserved that. Now, let me point something out here. I, I've described love oftentimes as them above you, as their good you pursue because of their value. That's my rhyme to define love. I think it's the world's best definition of love, actually. Uh, and I've said that before, and I'll continue to say it because it is. And, uh, and in that definition, the very first part, the very first part is them above you. That's submission. Submission is, in fact, a part of love. Not all of love, but it's a part of love. And so, therefore, when you think about submitting to somebody, you're thinking about taking a step into love. I will lower myself for you. Now, here's, here's something that's super, super important. I think that you need to pay attention to this. We lower ourselves in love for the good of another person. When lowering yourself for somebody else ceases to be for their good, then it is no longer a part of love. Then submitting is no longer a part of love. And the most obvious example is this. I think that sometimes the most loving thing an abused woman can do is go to another city. Now, some would say, well, submission is just taking a beating. 
It's just being there. It's lowering yourself, allowing somebody else to do whatever they want. But submitting is no longer a part of love if it allows for another person to do things that are not good for them. If it allows for people to do things that are evil and hurtful and things that are contrary to the will of God. Now, when it comes to Jesus as an example, it's important to note this. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was crucified. Should we just do all those things in every relationship, allow ourselves to be beat up over and over and over again? And the answer is this, only if it is for the good of another. You see, Jesus had to allow himself to be beaten and crucified and all those things I just said because he knew that the salvation of humanity rode upon whether or not he allowed it to happen. And so he was willing to take all the evil in all the world upon his shoulders because he knew it would benefit us. Submission is not enablement. Submission is lowering yourself for the good of another person. And, and here in 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says to us, hey, here's another thing you need to know about your treatment of other people. You've been called to treat people well because Christ suffered for you, notice this, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The second thing that, it, that needs to take place if you're going to live a beautiful life is that your treatment of other people should not be a response to how they treat you, but instead should be a response to your relationship with Jesus and your effort to make him the example that you follow with your entire life. You see, here's something Christians say a lot. I want to be more like Jesus. And they say it just about up until the time until somebody's a jerk to them. And then they say, well, I want to be a jerk back. And Peter says, when you treat people in a relationship as a jerk because they treated you as a jerk, then you are no longer following the example that Jesus has given you. Because Jesus treated people always in a way that was for their good, lowering himself to the point where he even died on a cross so that their best might take place. In your relationships, you ought to, if you want to live a beautiful life, you ought to follow the example of Jesus. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we get a, a glimpse of that example. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I just would say that Jesus lived the most beautiful life that has ever been lived. I think even if you come here today and you're not a Jesus person, you're not a Christian, then, then you probably kind of think that anyway. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus and he changed the world and he changed it for the better and he is one of the few names that 2,000 years later you still know despite the fact that he never wrote a book. Think about that. And why? You know his name because of how he lived his life in a way that was so incredibly beautiful. And, and if we want to live beautifully, we must follow in his steps and that means treating people in a loving way submissive way despite how they might treat you. And I would just ask this question, whose steps do you really want to follow in? I know if you're a Christian, the easy answer is Jesus, but do you really want to lower yourself for the good of those who treat you terribly? Do you really want to? 
hope the answer is yes, but I know that it's oftentimes not because I've seen that in churches, sometimes especially, people look at each other and they go, well, I'll treat you well if you treat me well. But as Christians, we're supposed to follow the example of Jesus. And listen, I mean, 22 through 25, verses 22 through 25, there may not be a more beautiful part in scripture. It says this about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was perfect. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the overseer, excuse me, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is crazy. I mean, Jesus, think about Think about being perfect. I don't know, you can't do that. But I mean, just like you are it. You know, you're like the best. And people start yelling mean things about you and your character. Would it be hard just to react to that? Have you ever, have you ever been um, unjustly accused of something? Or have you ever been unjustly punished for something? When I was a kid, I rode the bus one time to school, one time, because I had grandparents and a family that uh, would go out of their way to make sure I had to ride to school. But one time I rode the bus, and it was a whole new experience. There was like kids, I didn't even know they existed. But, uh, but like we got in big trouble as a bus that day, and they threatened to give reform to all of us if it ever happened again. Now, I would like to point out, and I can say this with a clear conscience years later, that I was sitting in the back of the bus being a nice kid. And, and when I was, I don't know what grade I was in, let's say fourth grade. When I was in fourth grade, the idea of getting a referral was basically like getting the death punishment. I don't know what it was. Now I could have got referrals. It would have been just fine. But at the time, it, it was like, like, I, pro- I might have chosen the death penalty. Like death penalty referral, death penalty referral. I would have to see that my dad's vein come out of his head, you know, and like I, I didn't want to deal with all that stuff. And so it was terrible. And I remember coming home that day and it's like, I didn't do anything and I'm going to be punished like one of those sinners. I didn't say that, but you know, like this is unfair. This is unfair. And sometimes in the unfairness of life, is when it's easiest to treat people poorly. I haven't done anything wrong. You treated me like I did something wrong, and now I want to treat you like you have done something wrong, because you have. And this is exactly on steroids what Jesus faced. To be clear, Jesus wasn't on steroids. Just trying to make that clear, the way that sentence came out. But this is magnify that to infinity, and this is what Jesus faced. He was perfect. He had sinners yelling at him, talking about how he was a sinner, how he deserved to die. And yet he lowered himself for them. He died for them, in fact. And it says that he was able to do this, to die for you and I, despite the fact that, you know, we are wretched sinners who sent him to the cross in some ways because, and I want you to notice this, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is two really profound things in one kind of long phrase. One, he was able to treat people with respect. He was able to submit to people despite how they treated him because, one, he trusted God. 
Isn't that part of the problem is we don't trust God? We're like, if I don't react, then what? Then I'm going to lose my social status. I'm going to, um, you know, not have my needs met. I'm going to feel unfulfilled. I'm, I don't know. Go down the line. We don't trust God. But Jesus, he didn't need anything from these people. He didn't need their respect. He didn't need them to like him. He didn't need to feel good because they were saying kind words to him because you know what they did? He did, he, he trusted his father in heaven to fulfill all those kind of human longings that we have. And we don't. Let's just point this out. You react negatively to people. Let me just make this super clear. You react negatively to people when they're negative to you, not because they were negative to you, because it causes something in you to well up. It, you know, it causes your bad childhood to well up or, uh, or how you've been made fun of in the past or your feelings of inadequacy. And so out of response of these negative things that were already inside of you, you start to spill over and you start to treat the other person badly too. I'm sure if you're aware of that. Nobody can make you yell at them. That's just something that happens because of you. And really, and, and I say you, but I mean me too, it happens because we don't trust God for all the things that God has promised to us. If we really trusted God for all the peace and all the joy and all the hope and all the love that we, that we feel we need, then when somebody yelled at us, we'd be like, okay, <laughs> I still have Jesus. I still have him. And so Jesus was able to do this perfectly. And so his treatment of people was based on his trust of God. But the other part is, it says that, that he trusted the one who judges justly. And so his treatment of people was based on the fact that, that he knew that God was the ultimate judge. And he wanted to do what his heavenly father wanted him to do more than he wanted to react to the negativity that he faced. And we don't have that in us sometimes. We treat people based on what's kind of going to make us feel better for a second. They yell at us. We yell at them. They're a jerk to us. We're kind of a jerk to them, you know, because it makes us have some level of satisfaction in the short term. But here, Peter reminds us that ultimately we should be trying to please the one who will judge us for eternity, God. The Bible declares that we... Even us who are Christians will sit at the judgment seat of God and we will answer for everything that we have done. Now, if you're a Christian, that, that answer will not be for whether or not you get into heaven or not because we know that we get into heaven based on the death and resurrection of Jesus and us placing our faith in it. But you'll still have to answer to God for everything you've ever done wrong. He won't be saying you might get in, you might not get in, but he will be saying, hey, let's talk about that. That's what I picture. Now, let's just, let's talk about that. You're looking at God and you're, he's going, let's talk about that. And I think that's what Peter has in mind, that you're gonna be there and, and you're gonna have a conversation. At the end of the conversation, he'll go, that's why I died. Welcome home. And that's awesome to me. But it doesn't mean that I should just be okay with going around treating people poorly because eventually I'll get into heaven because I still uh, need to recognize that I will sit before the judgment seat of God. And Jesus, his perspective was bigger. It's not about what these people think about me. It's about what my father in heaven thinks about me. 
And so he treated them according to the greater, more important relationship with the one who judges justly and not these people who judge unjustly. When you feel that you've been unjustly judged, it's easy to react, but God will never unjustly judge you. And so you could go, okay, fine, you can think that about me. You can call me that. You can, you can be that way to me. You can treat me with that attitude, but I'm focused on one who ultimately judges and he judges justly. And so my response to you is going to be submission, which is a part of love. Jesus had this eternal perspective that allowed for him to do this amazing part that I have in bold on my notes because I like it so much. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's the gospel. Jesus just died for us. Notice how many times it uses uh, the, the masculine pronoun, he, himself, his, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Jesus suffered it all for us and he was only able to do that because his perspective was beyond us. Didn't matter how, he, how we treated him, he treated us with the utmost love and respect. And then it gets a little more controversial. First Peter 3, 1 through 6. You won't like the first part, I can promise. Wives, in the same way, submit to yourselves to your own husbands. I'm nervous. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry, jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your un- inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Uh, first thing, clothing, let me just say this. Um, because you go, wait, I have jewelry on. Am I a bad person? Uh, let me just, this is easy. Uh, both women and men, I would say, but, uh, but here the focus is women, should dress in a way that is appropriate for those who profess to worship God. In 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, it says, I also want the women to dress modesty, modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, notice this, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. The idea is that when you put on clothes, uh, you should be putting on clothes that bring worship to God. Now, I believe that culturally that will shift, but always there's some moral standards that are going to go along with that, and modesty is always going to be one of them. And and so, women, uh, I wouldn't worry about your jewelry as much as I would worry about whether your focus is on bringing worship to God in your clothing and with your clothing, but also whether or not your your focus is on being beautiful through your clothing and through your makeup and your hairstyle, or whether your focus is on living a beautiful life, the exact thing we're talking about in this series. If you care more about what you look like in the mirror when you wake up in the morning than what you look like in the eyes of God, then you have crossed some 
boundary and you are not doing right, both women and men. And so the clothing thing, just dress in a way that brings worship to God and don't make your clothing the focus of your lives. Now, about this whole being a wife and submitting thing, we'll just skip it. Um, no, just kidding. Because this is, this is what you need to hear. This is the, I, I actually like teaching on this because I get to say this and it's something that people don't know. It's something that Christians get a bad rap for. I even mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, women, women, we have this idea, let me back up, uh, that, that Christians disrespect women and that the Bible supports this. But what you need to know is this. The Bible is a document, and the people who wrote it, Paul specifically, Peter Secondary, who wrote this book, have done more than anybody not named Jesus to move women forward in the world than anybody else. Anybody else. I think that any good historian will tell you the exact same thing, that besides Jesus who moved women forward more than anybody. Uh, there are perhaps two men who moved women forward more than anybody else, and their names are Paul and Peter. And, and so you need to have that in your head. When we come to this passage and Peter says, women, I want you to submit to your husbands, you need to know that as a whole, the Bible is the greatest document ever written for women's rights and for women's value and for, for the place of women on this earth. And the reason that, that I say this is because of this. You would not know the word sexist if it wasn't for the Bible. You would not believe that women had as much value as men if it wasn't for what is written in what we refer to as the Bible today. Wouldn't happen. Before the Bible was written, and the Bible, let me say this, influenced Western culture incredibly. If you look at Eastern cultures today, you know how much credit women get? Hardly anything. They're lesser than men. They're unimportant. They're treated with disrespect. They're treated exactly how men want to. I've read a couple stories lately of, of crazy things that happen in places where the Christian Bible is not liked very much, like women being uh, burned alive because they decided at the last minute they didn't want to marry their husbands or their future husbands. And those countries just go on and on and on. But the Bible has influenced Western culture so much that we have this crazy idea that women are equal to men and should be treated with respect. And yet people look backwards at the Bible and they read these statements and they forget when the Bible was written and go, well, the Bible appears sexist and Christians have been pushing down women forever and ever and ever. And frankly, it just makes me mad. And that's why I like talking about this verse. Now, now picture this. Uh, you're writing in a culture where women are seen as lesser, they don't have rights, they are unimportant, they are almost the possession of the men in the audience that you are writing to. And a guy comes along and he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. That's not a big deal at all. That is something that everybody would have expected. Everybody would have demanded. Women would have been beaten if they didn't do it. Peter only adds the benefit of doing it as a Christian. 
Because first, I'd like you to notice the point of what he says. The point is not that women should be kicked to the curb and treated poorly or anything like that, even though some would have you believe that. The point is, women should live such beautiful lives that their non-believing husbands become Christians. That's the goal. Notice it. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. The goal is here is not to push women down, but to help men become Christians. In another place, Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. All people in some way who are Christians are to submit to each other so that we can move forward in our Christian faith. But here, Paul looks at women and he says, hey, women, you submit so that your unbelieving husbands can become Christians. Again, submitting is a part of love, not becoming a, a stepping stone or a punching bag or anything like that. The idea that Peter is getting to is that women should be such great wives to their husbands that it moves their husbands to know Jesus as their savior. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the hate behavior of their wives. It's interesting because it's almost the same thing that we saw last week. In the passage we talked about last week, Peter said, live such beautiful lives that the unbelieving world, even though they want to say bad things about you, will notice how great Jesus is and become Christians. And here he looks at wives and says, lower yourselves. Lower yourselves underneath your husbands and have such a beautiful inner life that your husbands want to know Jesus. At the time, think about this, Christianity was brand new. Women were becoming Christians and they had unbelieving husbands. They're like, what do we do here? Now, all of a sudden, because of what Jesus has taught and because of what we're reading in these letters that are being given to us that will become the New Testament, all of a sudden, for the first time in our lives, we see ourselves as having as much value as men. We see ourselves as having as much worth as men. We see ourselves as being loved as God as much, by God as much as men. So does that mean that we don't respect our husbands anymore? Peter says, no. Instead, respect your husbands even more because you want to follow the example of Jesus and because you respect God and because you, you know that no matter how they treat you, you want to treat them good and be like Jesus so that their spiritual lives may be developed. You see, everybody wants to get hung up on the word submission, which again means lowering yourselves. We're told to do it to each other. You can make a case that men are even called to do it for their wives. But here the command is to wives to lower themselves, themselves in order that their husbands might move forward spiritually. Now we do believe uh, in Christian circles that within a marriage relationship, there is roles that have been defined in other places of scripture. And, and I don't wanna uh, talk about this for very long, but we believe that men uh, are the leaders of a household. And we also believe that men are the leaders in a church. And uh, that wives in some ways come under the leadership of husbands. That's fine, it's a different role, not one less, one more, just a different role. But when submission is brought up here, the idea is of lowering oneself for the benefit of the other person's spiritual life. 
That's the point of this passage. And so women who are married, who are here, and everybody, I would say the same thing. Live such a beautiful life, specifically in the area of your marriage, if you're a married woman, that you benefit the other person. He says at the very end, the reason you won't, and man, this is so crystal clear in our society today, the reason that you won't submit to your husbands if you're a married woman is out of fear. Isn't that true? Don't, don't you, I mean, not you maybe, but isn't, isn't much of what's said about women and how they should interact in a society and with their husbands, isn't it based on fear? Like, well, that guy won't treat you well, or what if he leaves you for another woman? Or, or, or you know, what if women go backwards in our society and we don't have a vote or a say anymore? What if eventually we're treated like they're treated where they don't have the Bible? And all, isn't it fear? But you ought not be in fear when it comes to your relationship with your husband, not because your husband will necessarily be great, but because you serve a great God who is worthy of your respect and who is the ultimate judge of your soul and who gave you a great example in Jesus. Then Peter says this other thing, and I can guarantee it would have been the more controversial thing that he would have said in the first century. What he just said to women would have been like, Why are you telling women this? But what he says next would have been the controversial thing. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate. Mind-blowing statement already. Not something that they would have thought of, not something you would think if it wasn't for guys like Paul and Peter. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, another part you won't like, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the bold statement. Peter is already, and Paul have elevated the place of women. They're just telling women how to interact now that they know that they have value and worth. But all of a sudden he says this, things to, this thing to husbands that, is, that would have been seen as crazy. Husbands, be considerate of your wives. I want to read this in the ESV because this is a weird sentence in Greek. It's, it's a weird kind of choppy sentence that gets translated in different ways. But I, I think the, the English standard version of the Bible actually helps us kind of understand it better. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, the part you won't like, let's just get past it, is that women are called weaker. And, and I would like to just say, we don't know what this means. I'll just make that clear up front. Um, but let's just say it's physical. Can I say this? We all know that. You take the average 10 men and the average 10 women and, and you have them fight, the men win. I, am I being sexist? I don't know. Like, maybe, but that's, that's true, right? I, uh, have you ever watched the WNBA? <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Uh, you laughed. I won't say more. But, but if you take the average 10 men and the average 10 women, then, then women are physically weaker. This is not sexist. This is a reality that we all see all around us. Now, perhaps it's emotionally. 
Perhaps. I've known, and again, I've known women who can beat me up, let me say that. So this is not a 100% thing, uh, but perhaps it's emotionally. And I would begin by saying I know a lot of women who, who are strong emotionally and perhaps stronger than I am emotionally. But let me read you from a non-Christian source, Psychology Today. It, it, this is just from one year ago. There was major study done to test uh, whether women were were less emotionally kind of stable than men. And here is uh, what psychology today has to say. Women do appear to react more negatively to unpleasant experiences in experimental settings. And it kind of goes, it says a lot of times in there, it appears that women are weaker. It doesn't use the word weaker, but, but weaker in this area and this area and this area and this area. Women are wired differently. And sometimes... Uh, we think that's terrible, but it's not terrible. I, I ready? Um, I like that women are, if it's true, that women are weaker emotionally, because I don't think that this necessarily says that. It could be physical. But if, if it is true that women are weaker emotionally, I like it. There's a reason that little boys cry for their moms, you know? And in fact, I want to point this out, that if you read the whole of the New Testament, weakness is not seen as a bad thing for the most part. I mean, there's like this verse in 1 Corinthians 1.27, and women, if you think this is about, if you're bothered by being weaker in this verse, then just point out to the men 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So if he made you weaker, it's to shame men. That I mean, there it is. It's the same exact Greek word, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, and, and obviously I joke, I say that in jest, but, but weakness is not seen as a negative thing. God himself says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. We have this idea that, that to say that women are weaker in any way is like this horrible thing. But it's not a horrible thing. I am stronger than most women I know physically, period. End of the sentence. I'm not a bad guy for saying that, I don't think. It's just a reality that I've kind of noticed anecdotally over and over and over again, you know, for, since about sixth grade when all the girls were bigger than me, um, you know? And the point of the verse is not to say women are weaker than men. The point is to say, men, treat your women with an understanding that in some ways your wives are weaker than you. The call is to men to be nice to their wives. That's what it's saying. And even to treat them with honor, or if you look at the Greek word, to treat them in a way that holds them in high respect or with great esteem or with great honor or respect to place a high value or price on them. The point of the verse is not to say, treat them as they are worthless, it's to say, treat them as if they are worth more than you are. That's the controversial statement in the first century world. It's not about the woman satisfying all of your desires and everything that you want to take place and her coming along for the ride. It's about you treating them with respect and raising them up as they lower themselves under you. 
What if every marriage was that way? What if every relationship was that way? I lower myself, you try to build me up. You lower yourself, I try to build you up. And we're always going lower and building each other up at the same time. Wouldn't it be beautiful? And then the sexist part of these verses. If men don't do this for their wives, then God will not listen to their prayers. That's no good. Women submit, your husbands become a Christian. Guys, treat your wives with respect and value them because if you don't, it will hinder your prayers. Now, there's not many things in the Bible like that. You might think there's a whole giant list of things where God's gonna say no to your prayers because you did, fill in the blank. You might even feel that way. Well, God said no to this prayer because I... You can fill in the blank for what you did last week. There's not that many. And one of them is men not treating their wives with honor, not being considerate of them as the one who is weaker. And so to the married men in the room, myself included, I would say this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Treat your wives with honor and respect. Be considerate of them. Place a great value and worth on them. And I'll return to this, even if they don't deserve it, because the whole passage is about how we treat people when they don't deserve it. How beautiful would our marriages be if wives were like, no, you're more important, and men are like, you're the most important thing in the world. How beautiful would all our relationships be if we all were fighting for that? I lower, you raise. You lower, I raise. Everybody would be going forward and our lives would be so much more beautiful. It kind of sums it up. Those are specifics, right? Like slaves, you could apply that to work. Wives, you need to act this way. Men, you need to act this way. And then he kind of hits the whole kind of broad idea in verses eight and nine of chapter three. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay, notice, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil, <coughs> excuse me, with blessing. <coughs> If you want to live a beautiful life, you have to stop treating people in a way that reflects how they've treated you. That's what he gets at. I mean, you can look at each of these words. Like-minded means united, connected, be close to each other. That's specifically for Christians, something said a lot. Sympathetic means to, to feel or suffer with another person. Love equals love. Compassionate equals tender. I mean, be tender towards people. Humble equals friend-minded. You wanna be a person's friend even when they're not treating you well. But he sums it all up at the end. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. But when people are jerks to you, this is my paraphrase, still be loving and kind to them, lowering yourself for their good. We talked about some good stuff in this series, but perhaps nothing more important than this. I see it in marriages. I would be so nice to them if they were just better, if they just did whatever, you know? 
I see it in churches and friendships. I would be a great friend to them if they were more like or whatever. I see it on social media all the time. And I talk about this a lot because it's, it's so pervasive. Christians, just your reaction, let's just admit it, your reaction on social media to people being jerks about Christian values is to be a jerk back. You base your treatment of other people on how they treat you. But here in these verses, it's so crystal clear that our treatment of others ought to be based on our respect for God, the example of Jesus, our trust of God, our knowledge that God is our ultimate judge. Just our relationship with Jesus in general. And so what I want from you this morning is for you to make a decision. And I just wanted to just pick a relationship. Ready? Bad relationship, difficult relationship, relationship fighting might be with your spouse, might be with a friend, might be with your parents, might be with your kids. Just pick a relationship. And as you go forward, I want you to make a decision to base your treatment of that person on your relationship with God and not on their treatment with you. Will you pray with me? Lord, this is easy to say for me. You know that. Easy to say. um, Very difficult to do, Lord. Uh, You know for me, God, that... That... uh, my, my competitive nature makes it difficult uh, in, in relationships sometimes because I want to be the winner. Uh, but you don't call us to be a winner. You call us to lower ourselves. And, and so, God, I pray uh, for me, for everybody who's here with me, everybody who will listen online to this sermon. I pray, God, that this morning we would make a real decision to... to Treat people based on our relationship with you if we have one and not on how others treat us. And I pray, God, that you would give us the wisdom to know what relationships you want that to be. I mean, in all of them, but the relationships where we struggle with that, you would give us the wisdom to see where you want us to really apply this to our lives. (coughs) And then, God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the fortitude to actually live out these things. Lord, it's really easy to sit here this morning and say, yeah, you know, I'm gonna treat them that way because of God, but when we get in the middle of it because of temper, because of all those things I mentioned that will well up inside of us, our feelings of inadequacy, our, our feelings of rejection, our fear of rejection, um, it's hard in the midst of it uh, to continue to treat people based on our relationship with you but I pray it would happen, Lord, because we love you because of the example you've given us and because of what you've called us to, but also because I want us, God, to live beautiful lives and it's impossible to live a beautiful life. God, when, when we're treating people based on how they treat us, because ultimately as sinful, fallen human beings, we will, Lord, we, we will trend negative and not positive. So Lord God, uh, as we leave here in a few moments and before that, as we celebrate communion, speak to our hearts and show us how to put this into practice and just build a courage and a fortitude in us to make it happen. I pray these things in your name, amen.